Hi, I'm Tracy Camilleri. Welcome to our second edition of podcasts in our Ghost Light series. In these dark times, our focus shifts to new beginnings. If the first step is the hardest in any new endeavor, how do you muster the courage, the energy and resolution to take it? We'll be talking to a variety of fascinating people reflecting on how to begin. Hello, I'm Tracy Camilleri, and today on our Ghostlight series, I'm delighted to be talking to Ben Morgan. Ben's a poet, critic, essayist, and he teaches English and classics at Oxford. As if that's not enough, he's currently finding time to complete a book on Shakespeare and political justice. But today we're going to focus on language, how it's changing, how we use and abuse it, and specifically how we can get better at reading between the lines. Welcome, Ben. Where are you in the world today? <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. And, and here I am in Oxford. Uh, it feels like the world is smaller than ever, but also bigger than ever. It's a very strange feeling. Everyone's further away, but everyone's more accessible. So here I am sitting in my study in, in Oxford, looking out at the world through the internet at what's been going on recently, which is loads. I was thinking, let's begin on an upbeat. In the past week or so, there's been a kind of scintilla of of joy in the air with mm. the news on the vaccine and also the American election. And I wondered, have you noticed any uptick in the language mm. out there at the end of this gloomy year? Well, your word joy is really relevant, I think, because that's a word I've seen everywhere. I was looking through newspapers straight after Trump's defeat and Biden's win. And I saw, you know, the Times revelers explode with joy was the was the headline, which is something you don't expect to see after an election. It's not it's not the normal political language that we see. The Guardian, I, I can't stop crying was the headline from one person, joyful celebrations on the streets. The nation led with Biden Harris victory provokes an outpouring of joy. This is emotional language about politics of a degree that I think we saw a shadow of in the Obama victory in 2008. But I think the level of rhetoric almost goes beyond that at this point. And of course, it's then been followed by the vaccine news. But I think the general sense is of a, a shift in language towards extreme emotional states and, and particularly joy. I've also noticed something that I think we're going to pick up on later in the conversation, which is these very simple but very interesting headlines. Biden beats Trump, New York Times. Biden defeats Trump, Washington Post. She did it, Atlantic. I think that cues up some other things that we're going to think about and talk about, which is the, the power of a, of a simple, often three-word expression of events. Yes, I was going to ask you about that and, and thinking about the stark contrast in language, although those headlines, actually, uh, I hadn't, hadn't, hadn't really focused on those. But that, as you say, that kind of blunt instrument of the sloganeering of three or four word, you know, I suppose Obama started it with, you mm. know, uh, yes, we can, or, <sighs> or the real thing, or take back control. I mean, absolutely. Why are they so effective? I mean, are they effective? I think they've proven immensely effective over the last few years. And as someone who does spend a lot of time thinking about and reading closely the language that's used in public life, I, I think it's building on something that's been going on for a long time. I mean, if you look back across advertising slogans, uh, the ones that we all remember from the last 20 years, Just Do It, the Nike slogan, Coke's probably first most uh, internationally famous slogan was wonderfully Coke is it in the early 1980s. Coke is it with a Trumpian exclamation mark. I mean, I think he's practically copyrighted the exclamation mark at this point, but, but it was there back then. I'm loving it. 
Remember that one from McDonald's? Yeah. Probably their yeah. most famous slogan. And and these things definitely then we can we can see a line from those sorts of simple three word slogans to take back control to absolutely to the Obama line. Yes, we can. Even the the less successful 2016 Clinton line, I'm with her, was trying to fit itself into that context. I think it says a number of things. I think one thing it says is that we like clarity and we like momentum in our language. We like things to be crisp and expressed clearly. But another thing that it says is that we like some ambiguity as well, because what is true of all of those slogans is there's often an it, yet just do it, I'm loving it, Coke is it, or a we that's very open. Yes, we can. There's no what in linguistics we would call a referent. There's no referent there. There's no, what is the thing that we can do? What is the it that I'm loving? Yes, it's McDonald's, of course, but it also leaves open. But you can associate McDonald's with other things you love if there's this ambiguous it hanging there at the end of the of the sentence. And that advertising campaign famously did. You know, you love your family, take your family to McDonald's. You just need an openness to the reference point. Even take back control. I think we're all living with the question that leaves, you know, in what way, what kind of control, from whom to whom. So political slogans build on two things. They build on this funny mixture of clarity and simplicity, but also ambiguity and open-endedness. And often the successful ones have a pronoun, a we or an it, a subject or an object that is open and that leaves people a space to project what they want to see, uh, the it that they feel identified with into that space. That's interesting. And that's projection that you talk about, that openness. I mean, does that work with individual words? I'm thinking of a word that's echoed down <laughs> for the past four years in the UK, certainly, Brexit. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> can we can we read into that what we want? Or is it does it close things down rather than open things up? It's such a difficult word because we've all lived, as you say, with it so intensely for the last four years. And it's such a it's such an ambiguous word as well, because it leaves open the question, who owns the exit? You know, it's the British exit, but from the EU. So it partly puts it in our court, but it also partly leaves it in their court, which has been kind of the story of the last few years as well. It's also a fascinating word because it simultaneously describes an action, the leaving of the EU by Britain, but also turns it into a noun. And that might sound like a really technical point, but if you think about what's kind of elided there, it's pretty much everything about the process. So what we're living with is the verb version of Brexit. So over the last three to four years, we've had to live inside the real time process. What does that actually look like? How long will it take? What are the deadlines? What are the agreements that will have to be made in order to meet the deadlines? Real questions of time and space and policy, some of which were aired in the referendum. But nonetheless, the noun itself just collapses all that into one single state or action. And as a result of that, it again can signify a lot of different things. I mean, what it means for someone who believes in a no deal Brexit is very different from what it means for someone who believed in, say, Theresa May's original ideas about the deal. All of these things can be accommodated within this noun. It doesn't say very much about the process which it signifies. So in a funny way, it has something in common with all of those 
just do it. Yes, we can slogans, which is that it uses language in a way that summarizes something and crisply summarizes it, but also leaves the referent very open. And I think mm. we're now seeing what that really looks and feels like in real political time. Interesting. I mean, if we stick with this, how do we talk about really tricky things in public life? I'm thinking now about this tiny, unseen, deadly coronavirus, yeah. you know, how difficult it is to talk about and particularly use of metaphor around mm. it. I mean, mm. I, I wonder what's interested you about the sort of metaphors that have been used around the pandemic. Well, one of the things that we think about a lot when we're teaching literature and linguistics, and it's one of the ways in which I try to make it really alive for my students, is to point out that metaphors are things that we live by. There's actually a book called that, Metaphors We Live By. And it's because we think in, in terms of metaphors, we think in frames. So we might think in terms of inside and outside might be an interesting frame that you might live inside. You might decide that a border is the same as a wall, for example, that those two things are metaphorically identified. They can become literally identified. We need an actual wall. But it's a question of the frame, the metaphor that you live inside, the one that you believe in and invest with meaning. And I think that literature can help us to become more aware of the fact that we often do take metaphors literally. We're very influenced by the metaphorical frames that we use. And a really good example is the way that Boris Johnson, for example, has spoken about the virus. Uh, he has talked about it partly because, poor man, he actually had it. He's talked about it through metaphors that are strongly focused on fighting. He described himself as having to wrestle the coronavirus to the floor. Uh, he compared it to an invisible physical assailant or a mugger. Early on in the pandemic, he talked about it as a fight in which every one of us is enlisted, uh, which is, again, you know, it's a metaphor that means a lot to us in Britain because it calls back to our Second World War history and to feelings of patriotism that might be contingent on that. So I think I think we really do see a framing of the virus as an invisible enemy and the whole thing as a sort of quasi-military campaign that requires compliance and discipline. I think that's very visible in some of the other words that we've used for the process. Um, lockdown, for example. I kept thinking, surely there's a less extreme word to use. I mean, it's an extreme enough experience. But lockdown immediately makes me think of the Tower of London. <laughs> you know, I start to see raised drawbridges and, uh, and uh, you know, it sometimes feels like that. It really does, doesn't it? And it, and it just certainly suggests, you know, state presence in your life, state intervention. And um, I, I don't know, I think I kept wondering if we were going to revive that lovely old word curfew which just has a, a slightly gentler edge. But we never did. That just disappeared. It was used a couple of times early on and then it disappeared. I think we saw, I mean, the Trump era may well be ending. I think, democratically speaking, it is ending. But <laughs> we saw a lot of this echoed in Trump. I mean, he talked about he talked about Joe Biden as a coward because he was hiding in a basement. Uh, again, you know, as I say that word, it sounds like the word abasement. It's also two words, a basement. And I think, you know, that frame, he immediately used that frame of hiding and fear and courage. Every time he talked about the fact he'd caught the coronavirus himself, he would mention the next breath that he probably caught it off military families. I noticed this almost every time he mentioned it. He'd say, look, how can I not hug them? They want to hug me because I'm the commander in chief. How can I not hug them? And again, that's 
playing out a frame where he is fighting the virus and getting it means you're bravely confronting it, which is medically doesn't really make any sense, but certainly was part of a wider frame or metaphor for the encounter with the virus. So I think it's been really interesting to watch all that. The other side of that is the fact that I've also been struck that it's been a year of very few stories. Actually, it's been a year of numbers. Mm. And every day here, certainly in the UK, Mm. the numbers come out. And yet we don't Mm. hear the stories behind those numbers. I mean, do you think that's because we're at pains to show we're following the science or what what do you think's behind that? In this country, I noticed early on, as I'm sure we all did, that the emphasis was on NHS capacity, that it was about the way of coping with the uncertainties of the situation was to say, look, we have a certain limit of capacity in the NHS and what we're not trying to do here is completely defeat this enemy immediately. We are looking to avoid going over capacity. And that gave us something that I think we all need in situations like this, especially with, as you say, this tiny and tangible enemy, which is a clear goal, a clear, uh, objectively measurable goal. A numbers certainly give the illusion of control. Maybe it's not an illusion, let's hope not, but but they, they allow you to measure something which otherwise might feel immeasurable. And I think um, that's also been there in the rhetoric around science. I know GP friends of mine who are frustrated with the language of follow the science because they know that science describes not a clear, objective, single piece of knowledge, but a method through which we acquire knowledge. Science is a series of methods, and there's no one scientific opinion on almost anything, though, of course, consensus is reached on all sorts of important issues. During the early stages of this coronavirus pandemic, it wasn't clear that following the science was a completely neutral thing to do. There were different policy consequences that you might draw from the same scientific belief. You might, you know, you might think, well, we should now lock down or we should go into a tier system or we should. There are all sorts of different consequences you might choose. And I think one of the things that follow the science as another three word slogan did for governments is it arguably allowed them to push the responsibility for the choices that they as governments were making onto scientists and thus take them out of the realm where they could be debated. Whereas actually most scientists would tell you that certainly in the early stages of encountering a new phenomenon in the world, debate is actually very much of the essence. It's, 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 it's a debate following objective standards and methods. So I think numbers and science have to some extent helped us to, in various ways, allow us a framework within which we can claim an objective, measurable outcome when perhaps more subjective or political choices are also sometimes being made. I don't want to spend the whole time talking about the pandemic, but I've got one last question that comes out of what you just said here, and it's around tone. I've been thinking Mm -hmm. quite a lot about tone this year as so much Mm -hmm. of our interactions are virtual. And I've been interested in how leaders have got people on side, I suppose, and thinking, I I think Macron was accused of, of, of treating his citizens like like children and how he mm. talked about the pandemic. And, and we've already talked about Boris Johnson sort of wrestling with him to the ground. <laughs> yeah. and, yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, you know, his sort of world beating everything. And yet yeah. I've also been struck by leaders like Angela Merkel, Jacinda Ardern, 
having a very mm. different tone. Mm. And I mean, is mm. it just that they're women or mm. I mean, what's the secret here? I mean, I don't know if you have a view on that. It has been a massive feature of the coverage of coronavirus uh, globally that we can see there are certain countries which seem to be doing much worse with it and certain countries which seem to be doing much better with it. And the, the notorious obvious contrast is here we have America, the most developed democracy in the world with some of the finest scientific resources struggling and actually with one of the worst rates supposedly in the world. And over here we have New Zealand, which, uh, you know, is a tiny island, but which has actually managed to do a, a brilliant job of controlling the virus. And of course, one of the ways in which we process that is through gender difference, because nobody has incarnated the idea of the kind of strongman leader in the West more consciously and constantly than Trump, arguably, whereas Yusinda Ardern has always represented a slightly different model of leadership. I mean, I, I think of her in the wake of the terrorist attacks in New Zealand, where she reached out to the Muslim community. She allowed herself to be seen crying. She, she hugged a reporter who was interviewing her, who said that he was worried as a Muslim citizen of New Zealand, that he was going to be discriminated against. These sorts of reactions, which seem to come from this very different space concept of leadership, nurturing almost, you could argue, if you were going with gender stereotypes, maternal. I've been looking closely at her rhetoric around the pandemic, and I think it's been interesting because it's been a mixture. She started out with some pretty, what we would traditionally think of as macho rhetoric. She started out with, we will have to go hard and go early. That was her first, that was the first uh, slogan, effectively, that she used around lockdown, was that we're going to have to go hard right in there and stop it. She didn't resist some of those more macho or, if you like, more forceful images. But then I looked at what she had to say later. And for a start, her slogan, I mean, I was just talking about lockdown and how draconian that sounds, the edge that has in to my ears. Her slogan was, stay home to save lives. I find that a very interesting contrast. For a start, it gives you a clear sense of why you are staying home, and it cleverly alliterates stay and save. It also doesn't talk about locking people up. It talks about it as a choice that they're making for an outcome that they desire. And that was very much reflected in another image that she used, which again reflects this more cooperative vision of the response. She referred to the New Zealand population as a team of six million. Again, I think that's a really clever, we're talking about back to metaphorical frames. You know, this isn't a game, actually. There isn't a clear result necessarily over the horizon next week. But nonetheless, that language of team immediately puts it in a frame that we can all get behind and that we all understand and that makes us feel connected to each other. And it solves in some ways a central problem that I think is at the core of the coronavirus response rhetorically, which is that we are having to pull together by staying apart. And it's just a terribly difficult manoeuvre to manage rhetorically. And I think any corporate entity actually recognises that kind of problem where you've got two opposite trajectories that you're having to reconcile. You're having to do two things at once. Um, stay home to save lives is a brilliant solution to that problem because it it makes the two acts echo each other rhetorically. They sound alike. They sit next to each other. The other thing she said, which I might just read some of, is quite short, but she talked about ASNAT weekend, which of course is a very important weekend, in, and she talks about enjoying the company of your bubble. She also reaches back 
to the Second World War and to previous wars. And she says, stay local, reflect on the amazing sacrifices of our forebears. Decades ago, they came together in the most testing of circumstances, half a world away, and helped forge who we are today. It was a very different battle to the one we are in now, but the character of who we are as a country remains exactly the same. So please stay strong, stay home, be kind. That again, I'm not just saying she did everything better than Boris Johnson. I mean, it's a more complicated picture than that. But but that nonetheless, I think that's a very interesting contrast with his use of warlike language, because she sees it as a language of pulling together, of sacrifice, of forbearance. And that is a, a face of war that's more passive in some ways, but that also is very much part of that history. And also, as you say, that focus on kindness and that uh, pulling together while being apart reminds me of that great Emily Dickinson line, so we must meet apart, and which we've been doing, of course, all this year. That's absolutely right. Yeah. <laughs> ben, I don't want to leave politics because I know you're writing this book on Shakespeare and political justice, and you've been mm. thinking very much about a language and politics. And just to go back to what we were talking about earlier around the American election, and mm. you know, there's been so much focus on. Trump's language, Trump's tweets and so on. And I just wonder, um, I think all of us have been focusing, you know, much more mm. on on Biden mm. recently than than, mm. than than we have for obvious reasons. But I wonder, mm. does his use of language interest you? Absolutely. I mean, we all indelibly uh, got in our brains now Trump's use of language from his Twitter feed and so on. And it, it's going to be a while until that feels like a relic. But actually, subtly, Joe Biden's been using language in a very, very interesting and politically astute way, which I think has helped him. I, I just noticed a very particular stress and a very particular strategy that Joe Biden kept using throughout the debates and so on. Um, there was one great moment for him in the first debate with Donald Trump, where um, Donald Trump had famously said about the pandemic, it is what it is. This was a line that he used, meaning whatever you want to project onto that, I suppose. It's a way of, of sort of doing what we've been talking about, which is to push it rhetorically aside. And we are where we are. And Joe Biden said in the first debate, said to Trump's face, we are where we are because you are who you are. I noticed that as a very strong line. It was one of those ones that gets picked out and goes all around the internet, which of course is another thing that all politicians have to be aware of now is that almost the, the whole performance through the debate is less important than those moments you can get to go viral. And he kept coming back to that structure. Famously, Trump had said he didn't want to panic people. That's why he didn't reveal the full extent of the danger early on. Joe Biden responds in this debate, we didn't panic, you panicked. Same structure push it back onto him, create what we've been talking about, a crisp set of parallels, stay home, save lives. We didn't, you did. Pan we didn't panic, you did panic. These sorts of, they seem simple, but they're very, very eloquent when they're used um, thoughtfully in this way. It's not about this. Another thing that he said in this very same debate, he says, we're learning to live with it. People are learning to die with it, was one of his other lines. I mean, they definitely thought about this as a strategy. It's not about his family or my family. It's about your family. Another another line from that same debate. So we've seen all the way through this desire to focus on and really enable people to see things through clear binaries, see things as balanced between a clear right and a clear wrong. And that's such an important thing for a politician to be able to do in an election. He did it very, very carefully in his rhetoric and in the details of his rhetoric. 
Really interesting, Ben. I mean, you're you're trained to look at the kind of bones underneath <laughs> and the structure mm. underneath the way people speak. And I think, you know, we work a lot with people leading in business and spend a lot of time polishing the content of what they're going to say, getting the figures right, getting the slides right. Yeah. But really thinking about the bones and the structure of, of how you speak and how you communicate and the power of it. Mm-hmm is something I think that perhaps people don't spend enough time thinking about. And I wonder, is there, I mean, you do stray outside (laughs) politics if you want to, but I wonder if there's anyone who you see in public life who is, I mean, you've just talked about Biden, but who is Mm. using rhetoric in a powerful and interesting way. Well, going right, I'm afraid it seems to be impossible to avoid minefields in discussion of contemporary life at the moment. But the person who actually sprang to my mind most powerfully was uh, was Greta Thunberg. I think she's an absolute genius at communication. And I think that she has managed throughout uh, the last, I mean, she's gone from being a from being a, an unknown sort of 14-year-old girl to a global icon in two years. And so whatever your feelings about her, you have to recognise her immense um, capacities. She's proven to be, and the people around her are proven to be, communication geniuses, really. Uh, how do you do that? I think she's followed a lot of the same strategies that we've been identifying. She started out with a very simple message. Note that rule of three words again that sort of unofficially come up school strike for climate. The first image of Greta Thunberg is sitting next to this. She's just a little girl sitting on the side of the road next to this sign with three words on it. And I thought seeing that, that really was marketing genius, even if she wasn't intending it to be, because the simplicity of it amplified the message so much. And you know, I'm not, I haven't talked so much about visuals in this, but the visual of it also very much amplified that simplicity and that message. She's gone on with this kind of this other thing that I think has been noticeable about the slogans we've talked about, which is taking the familiar and inverting it or taking something which we think we know and working within that. So the examples I just gave from Joe Biden are someone who is taking something you've heard and turning it on its head so that you can follow his logic. You can be persuaded that he's winning that argument. I think it's pretty similar with um, with some of what Greta Thunberg said because she's played up to her youth rather than trying to get past it as a, you know you might not listen to me because I'm young but really I'm very authoritative. She hasn't taken that line. She stayed within the frame of being a schoolgirl, and I noticed that with some of the remarks she's made. I mean, in her first public address, she said, "We are striking because we have done our homework and they have not." I thought that was incredibly right. clever because there you are. Of course, of course, she does homework every week. And we all secretly suspect that school children work harder than world leaders. <laughs> so, <laughs> so there's that kind of sense of, yeah, maybe she really does know her stuff, but she's taking the frame we know about her. I mean, the, the famous line as well that she used in Stockholm in 2018 at the climate conference, she said, our leaders are behaving like children. So we're going to have to be the adults. I mean, that's really, again, you know, she knows exactly what she's doing there because she's taking, rather like Biden, she's taking the frame we know and she's upending it. And that makes it easier to accept her message because suddenly the thing that we might think somewhat limits her, which is her youth, actually becomes very enabling and becomes at the centre of her appeal. I would say that she's been one of the cleverest communicators in the last few years. 
Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. I've got one last question for you, and it's about the importance of beginnings and endings. And again, in this virtual world, uh, a lot of our beginnings and endings haven't been quite as satisfying as as they have been in, in real life. I wonder if you could give us as a gift, and this could be from poetry, from Shakespeare, for whatever, <laughs> a wonderful beginning and maybe a gorgeous ending as well to finish this with and, and tell us why you think they work. My wonderful beginning, this is a great question. Thank you so much for this, Tracy. I love it. Uh, my wonderful beginning is the most famous beginning there is, I think, uh, in drama, which is the beginning of Hamlet, except everyone knows the play, but they don't know the first two words. And the first two words of the play are who's there and the reason i quote that is because those first two words tell us everything we need to know they're so crisp they're so clever because you've seen four men walk on stage guards of the watch in elsinore in denmark and when one says to the other who's there the actors are told the audience are told we're all told they're in the dark they can't see each other that question is the question of the whole play who is hamlet what is it to be or not to be and so on it immediately instructs the audience as to what's going on, where they are, the situation, and what's likely to come. And it's immediately dramatically involving. It creates a conflict. Nobody knew better than Shakespeare how to compress ideas into tiny spaces. So I would say, who's there is the best opening to a play ever, in my view. <laughs> and uh, and then there's, uh, the, in terms of a good ending, I mean, you, the one Biden's been using, you don't get better than that. It means once in a lifetime that justice can rise up and hope and history rhyme. That's Seamus Heaney from The Cure at Troy. And that's a story about recovery from a siege and from a crisis and from a possible destruction of a society. And he's used that line over and over again, once in a lifetime, hope and history rhyme. And I think it doesn't get better than that as an ending to a poem. Kudos to him for that choice. Ben, that's a wonderful ending to our podcast as well. Thank you so much for all your insights on reading between the lines. Ghost Lights will be back shortly with another edition in this, our second series. Goodbye. You've been listening to Ghost Lights, a podcast by Thompson Harrison. Thompson Harrison is a leadership and organization development consulting business where we bring experience, expertise, and a uniquely creative approach to offer highly specialized leadership and organization development consultancy. Thompson Harrison is skilled at designing successful ways for leaders to embrace new ideas and remain dynamic. We work with senior leaders and their teams to transform their organizations in response to a fluid context and a changing set of stakeholder expectations. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.